Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Two Marconi engineers return from war, set up a transmitter, break a record and return to Chelmsford. What happens next will... Well, it won't blow your mind, but it'll be quite interesting, I hope. Because on this episode, news and music come to the wireless here on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... Hello there, I am Paul Carenza, you are you, and by the magic of the ether, we are communicating. Well, I'm communicating with you, it's quite one way. But it wasn't always so. Radio used to be a two-way street, and that's where we left things last episode. Uh, The hope is this podcast will ultimately get to the BBC being launched, and we can dwell for a while on those early BBC years of Savoy Hill and the Pips and Dinner Jackets. But for now, we're in pre-BBC territory. Occasionally, though, I might chuck in something from a bit later on. Now, the BBC used to do uh, yearbooks, and this is the one from 1930, and it was just really to accompany the broadcasting of that year. So it had updates of things that were on, also to engage and enthuse the listening public. So here's an article. This is from this BBC yearbook, 1930. An article called The Future of Entertainment. Stage, screen, wireless, television. Now bear in mind television hadn't fully come in as a a regular BBC service for another six years or so. So we'll have a little excerpt from this and then we'll dive back ten years or so to find the first instance of entertainment on the radio. This is by Charles Morgan, The Future of Entertainment. It is as yet too early to speak in detail of the probable effect of television on entertainment. It is possible that the time may come when, without leaving his armchair, a man may be a seeing and hearing member of the audience in any playhouse, cinema or concert hall throughout the world. If this power is ever brought to mechanical perfection, there is little reason that anyone but a few should go in person to any place of entertainment again, from which it follows that, for want of a local audience, theatres, cinemas and concert halls may be closed down and all entertainment may be concentrated in studios supported by an international organisation of televisionists. By this gigantic pooling of resources, we might obtain the most wonderful entertainment the world has ever seen, but might alternatively, if the control fell into the wrong hands, see all entertainment debased to the level of international millions or used for the vilest propaganda. The development of television will need to be watched with care. We might have some more excerpts from that fine prophetic book at some point. It's interesting to read that in the light of the modern era, especially amid a lockdown when, as I speak to you, theatres and the like are currently closed and just toying with reopening those who can. But of course, many may not be able to afford to after this. So that article just predicting the way that actually television might replace them, which it hasn't quite, but there is still that need, that urge to meet up. But in the meantime, radio has arguably now more than ever helped connect people, the way that the BBC local radio stations have been uh, connecting local communities and helping those who need it most. Anyway, let's delve back to 1920. Any questions along the way, do email me, paul at paulcrenza.com, and indeed your early broadcasting memories as well. We've got another one of those coming up shortly. Also coming up, next episode, of course, we are celebrating the Melba Concert. This is a landmark of British radio, the first professional radio programme, really, as a test to see if there is an audience out there who would be interested in broadcasting. So we'll be releasing that episode exactly 100 years to the day since Melba's famous broadcast. And if it's not famous already for you, then listen to the next episode. You will hear all about it. June 15th, 1920 it was. So on June the 15th, 2020, that's when 
the next episode will land. So if you are listening in the run-up, try and listen on the day of release. And on that day, incidentally, I'll be doing an online talk about the history of British broadcasting. Info about that is at guildfordfringe.com. And of course, you don't have to be in Guildford uh, to join it because it's online as our most things nowadays. Uh, info's in the show notes. Also, if you would like to book my talk on the history of British broadcasting, perhaps as we approach the other big centenaries in 2022, the 100th anniversary of the BBC and so on, do get in touch. Paul at paulcarenza.com. Lastly, in this rather overlong intro, a big hello to anyone in Chelmsford or Essex who is hoping to be celebrating radio's big centenary with events this year. Obviously, it's all a bit lockdowny, so the big birthday bash is been rather postponed uh, which i guess is partly why i've started this podcast to say happy birthday radio really because how else do we say it we must shout it broadcast and 10 points if you remember that those are words from oliver lodge who invented the radio tuner two episodes ago so hello chelmsford and indeed that's where we are heading for this week's episode for the first tunes on the wireless It's war's end, technology's moved on, the government have finally paid attention to radio and lots of soldiers who'd learnt wireless communications in the war are coming home and wanting to keep their radio sets working. They were called radio hams. Uh, There's no vegan alternative to the radio ham, as far as I'm aware. Fresh from their transatlantic test transmission in Ireland, Marconi engineers Lieutenant Ditcham and Captain Round returned to Chelmsford to test the range and quality of a new transmitter. Six kilowatts, and there are these two huge 450-foot radio masts towering above the Chelmsford works. And from those masts, Ditcham's voice is sent out to all who tune in. MZX calling, MZX calling. This is the Marconi valve transmitter in Chelmsford. Now, these call signs simply mean you can tell who's transmitting. Testing on a wavelength of 2,750 metres. So, MZX is the call sign for the Chelmsford works. How are our signals coming in today? Can you hear us clearly? Crucially, they need to ask those who hear it to report back, just to see how far the signal has reached and what the quality was like. Ships at sea, land stations far and wide, and those radio hams who've got a mix of crystal sets, very delicate cat's whiskers, they used to call them, that you had to get just right and don't slam the door, you might lose the signal, or valve sets, the more reliable future. To get them to report back, Ditcham and Round realise they need to keep the transmissions Interesting. I will now recite to you. And so Ditcham reads out my usual collection of British railway stations. Railway timetables. For test purposes. Well, it's better than just numbers like last week's North Sea Ghost. If Marconi is obsessed with ships and Captain Round is more focused on planes and kit for them, then Ditcham we can link with trains. Ships, planes, and trains all travelling far and wide, just like radio was beginning to. Ditcham is quoted as noting Distinct enunciation is essential and it's desirable to speak in as loud a tone as possible. Well, he should know he is a true pioneer, an expert in a thing that no one else yet really even does and few even know about. Ditcham is our first real radio presenter. But after just a few weeks, it's the end of the line for the railway stations. While radio calls at News Central and Music Junction. Hang on. Who wrote this stuff? Well, don't pay him. Oh, that's right, it's me and... I'm not being paid. Although you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash paulcarenza or coffee.com slash paulcarenza. That's K-O-F-I. <clears throat> uh, but come on, Bradshaw's Railway Guide. The Great Northern Railway starts at King's Cross, London. Ditcham could have read anything. And the anything. Northwestern Railway starts from Euston. It's not exactly going to set the world Midland on fire. Railway starts from St Pancras. And yet, the in the very first days of the 1920s, this verbal act sparks British broadcasting into being. People tune in, literally, to hear it. It even makes the newspaper with letters to the editor saying that they are enjoying the new technology, but that the content of the transmissions could be Boston, a bit more exciting. 
New Holland, everyone's a critic. Hull, Boston, Depart, Sir Ditcham, Two, Round and Marconi HQ in London all agree that Ditcham could read something else. In January 1920, Ditcham opts to read a newspaper out loud, the start of two weeks of Ditcham's News Service, as he calls it. Yes, this transmission even has Britain's first programme title. He reports the headlines on the front pages, but also the sports results on the back pages. Perfect for the ship's sparks. That's the radio operators stuck at sea. And it's popular. Over 200 reports from listeners in, as they were called, in Spain, Portugal, Norway, up to one and a half thousand miles away. Uh, The transmitter is replaced and upped. Goodbye, six kilowatts. Hello, 15 kilowatts. And so what next? What do you do with the extra kilowattage? Well, Ditcham decides to introduce a gramophone record or two. Still news as well. 15 minutes of that, 15 minutes of music. Just half an hour then. But that's all the licence actually allows. And that, turns out, is rather a good length for a programme. Maybe that half-hour time slot will last. Oh, and Ditcham and Round's fellow engineers in Chelmsford, well, they play instruments. But before we meet the band, let's meet someone else who introduces news and music on the radio, except a bit more recently than Mr Ditcham 100 years ago. Every episode, we like to feature a broadcasting memory from you, and this one from presenter and broadcaster Emily Jeffrey. Hello, this is Emily in Eastbourne. One of my earliest memories of television has to be watching the saggy old cloth cat Bagpuss and the, quite frankly, very odd stories of lost objects in each episode. And because the Emily in the story loved him, so did I. We even had a ginger cat at the time. Those marvellous mice and their mouse organ and mill. I wish I could make chocolate biscuits out of butter beans. Just genius. As for radio, I've got some vague memories of scampering around the school hall to the BBC's Music and Movement programme, which is giving me flashbacks of cabbagey smells and the blue metal climbing frame attached to the wall. But probably my first memory was of the time pips every hour. Was there a tiny person inside the radio making that sound before the news? Is there a tiny person inside the radio? Oh yes, Emily, there is a person in the radio and sometimes that person is you. Uh, You can hear Emily on her marvellous podcast that she co-presents, Edge of England, exploring the coast of this fine land. She's also broadcasting to the world, but especially BBC Radio's Sussex and Surrey. Meanwhile, back in early 1920, in the style of, let's say, later with Jules Holland, except we'll call it earlier without Jules Holland, explore the lab and welcome the band. In this corner, engineer Mr G.W. White, a pianist, will organise some live music. And over here, fellow engineer Mr Beaton with his oboe. Good evening, Mr Beaton. And then in this corner of Chelmsford Works, Mr Higby will play woodwind for us. Ah, but what a song, I hear you say. Well, it might mean Captain Round needs to build a new microphone to cope with the sound of the human voice, but from this far corner of the factory, Mr Edward Cooper... He sings tenor in a local band, and so he's roped in too. And lastly for tonight, we go out of the lab, in fact, out of the studio, up the road, and we'll find this exciting new singer, a soprano named Winifred Sayer. Uh, Thank you, not Jules Holland. Well, it definitely wasn't Jules Holland, as you can tell by the terrible impression. Now, not only in February 1920 is Winifred Sayer the first woman on British radio, but something else is different about her too, because unlike the others, she is not a Marconi employee. She can't just be asked to do it then. She needs to be employed. Though she's totally naive as to what's going on here, her factory makes ball bearings up the road. This is like another planet to her. 
Winifred's being paid a few shillings, so technically she is the first professional artiste of the British wireless. So a concert is prepared, a proper concert. There's the first printed broadcast schedule. It's just a memo sent internally around Marconi's, but this is the ancestor of the Radio Times, of the TV listings mags. For the first time, listeners in are told when to expect a transmission to be made. Not just haphazard, but they can tune in and find it. At 11am and 8pm, February 23rd till March the 6th, 1920. Hello, MZX calling. This evening, for a change, we have a vocalist. A lady vocalist, too, you'll be glad to know. So I will now ask her to start on her first song. Will you start now, please? Those are Ditcham's words that introduced Winifred Sayer. Now, we don't have the original recordings. It wasn't recorded. So here's a gramophone version of the first song that Sayer sang. This version is from six years earlier, but you close your eyes and imagine hearing this on your wireless radio a hundred years ago. A radio that, till a few months before only made dot and dash noises. The song, absent. Now that version there is by Christine Miller in 1914 on gramophone, not wireless radio. Winifred Sayer in 1920 would sound a lot less polished. No backing, no instruments, although they are frustratingly present, you just can't play them at the same time because it would distort the sound. Her note is therefore found with a tuning fork, so she prefers short songs to keep on key, like the duet that she sings with Edward Cooper, the Marconi engineer who has dragged her in. And Winifred Sayer does feel dragged in. She doesn't get it at all, singing into a telephone handset in a factory room of boxes next to a giant noisy generator. She calls it a Punch and Judy show to the engineers there. These are boys with their toys. And yet top brass have come down. Godfrey Isaacs, the managing director of Marconi's, is there from London to witness. And he tells her on the way out that she's just made history. And so she goes home to her dad, who asks her what she did. She explains, and she says it was all a bit daft, really. Three nights and 30 shillings later, her work is done. She forgets all about it until the Marconi company sent her a souvenir folder containing all the reports of those who'd heard it and reported back. It was 145 land listeners, 68 sea listeners, and eight of those were from over a 1,000 miles away. About half were listening on the older, less reliable crystal sets, and about half were listening on the newer valve sets that paved the way for household radio sets. Winifred Sayer tells her father, well now, they couldn't make that one up, could they? Who will pick up the story from here? Well, the most unlikely of companies pushes British broadcasting on. The Daily Mail. Now, for the broadcasters, the Mail have good news and bad news, which is unlike their normal newspapers, which is mostly bad news. The bad news is they and the rest of the printed press insist Marconi announcers read from yesterday's newspaper, not today's. Reading the paper from each day could risk sales, of course. But the good news is the Mail want to sponsor a bigger transmission test. The Mail editor, Tom Clark, hatches the plan. He's an old friend of Arthur Burroughs, Marconi's head of publicity. More of him later. But the Mail won't get behind a singer from Hoffman's ball bearings like Winifred Sayer. No, they want a star, the biggest star, Dame Nellie Melba, whose 100th birthday episode lands exactly 100 years after Melba first sang, June the 15th, 1920. So next episode, find out how the Mail and the pre-BBC broadcasters, today's bitter rivals, they work together 
to bring us the first professional public radio broadcast on the next episode of the British Broadcasting Century. So do invite people to this birthday party, and not just next episode specific party, but this onward series. Please do like, share, rate, review, subscribe. Make sure you're doing all of those things wherever you got this podcast. Early ratings and reviews really make a huge free difference in getting this out there. Visit our page on facebook.com slash bbcentury and there are plenty of lovely images, audio and video from broadcasting's earliest moments for you to like and share and be part of the community. You can find me on Twitter at Paul Carenza or at bbcentury or email me paul at paulcarenza.com with a voice message to get on a future episode. Your questions, comments, memories and general historical geeking out is all welcome. And we'll see you on the birthday of the Melba broadcast, June 15th, and I'll tell you what happened exactly a century ago to that day and why it mattered quite so much. Bring candles. Oh, and it's funny. It's what There is a genuine joke in it said by Melba. I cannot wait. And if you're quick, catch my History of Broadcasting online talk, Monday 15th of June. Details at guildfordfringe.com or in the show notes. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza, with original music by Will Farmer. Archive clips are, to the best of our knowledge, in the public domain, being as old as they are. If you disagree and own any clips, do get in touch, accept our apologies and we'll take them down. And accept our thanks for having such marvellous audio out there for us all to hear and learn from. Be informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time on the Bumper Birthday Bash issue of The British Broadcasting Century. <laughs>